HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I'm excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You will hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the pepper coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking about this idea you have. That way you're engaging them. They're engaging with each other. And you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You'll also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. This is the 266th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning chef and restaurateur from the West Coast who has a brand-new podcast. 
and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to practice patience and understanding, especially in this uncertain time of COVID. Let's remember that we are that we are in a really difficult period that is challenging for all of us, and perhaps some more than others, due to work, family, health, finances, and just life. It's important to have extra tolerance and show kindness as we go about our lives to make the most and the best of every day. They say patience is a virtue, so let's practice it. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is David Nafeld. He is the executive chef and co-owner of the award-winning restaurants Cafico and Cafico Elementari in San Francisco, California. A Bay Area native and graduate from the Culinary Institute of America, David has worked alongside some of the most esteemed names in the industry. Among his accolades in 2018, Cafico was named one of Bon Appetit's top 10 best new restaurants in America, as well as one of Esquire Magazine's best new restaurants. David recently began co-hosting a new podcast called The Main Ingredient, which takes a deep dive with some favorite artists, chefs, musicians, actors, and producers. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Sherry. Well, I'm thrilled to have you and, and chat everything that's going on with you. There's a lot happening. Um, I always like to start with my guests and find out a bit about their background and just how, how you got into the industry and what led you into the profession of being a chef. Yeah, sure. I'll try and keep it brief because, um, you know, I know probably you want to get into more stuff than just my bio. But, um, you know, I think for me, it was very accidental. When I was 13 years old, I needed to get out of the house and earn my own money. And that was just, you know, I came from a immigrant background and my, my family are all refugees from uh, the former USSR. I was born here and I was the first person in my family to be born here. But essentially my house was, um, you know, a very kind of immigrant mentality. And, you know, just uh, the feeling of wanting to be self-sufficient and not depending on anyone else. So I got a job in a um, produce stand, uh, stocking produce and doing stuff like that. And strangely enough, that led me to a second job uh, washing dishes in a Greek Italian cafe. And it kind of just kept rolling from there. And I didn't really view it as being a potential uh, profession until I was probably like 16 or 17. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't very posh uh, or in vogue or popular to go to uh culinary school or to, you know, they also weren't as um, proliferated as they are now. Right. And, you know, I wanted to be, I had an insecurity about it, frankly, about, you know, going to culinary school and becoming a chef because, you know, at that time it was synonymous with kind of like, you know, being a burnout, not being able to go get into college, doing any of those things. But it was truly like one of the few places on the planet that made sense to me when I was in the kitchen. Everything made sense. The um, the meritocracy of it made sense. The 
the intensity of it made sense. Everything kind of just slowed down and, and was really clear to me the way it wasn't in like a classroom. And, um, so for me, that insecurity led me to wanting to seek out what the best culinary school in the world was. And, you know, my research showed that it was in New York and Hyde Park. And so, you know, I applied there and at that time they, um, the prerequisite was to have uh, some experience before, which actually worked quite perfectly for me. And I ended up going to school there. And that was kind of the rest is history. And, you know, I've been working in restaurants ever since my entire life. Yeah. Well, what what year were you at the CIA? When is this about? I think 2003, 2002, 2003, around that time. Yeah, no, I've always, I'm always impressed when, when, that's on people's resume that they went there. I, a little little fact about me is I moved to Chicago after college and I, I had a moment where I, I thought I wanted to be a chef and I started looking around at culinary schools and I ended up doing a six-month program at um, the, the Cooking Academy of Chicago, which doesn't exist anymore. But it was, yeah, I was just thinking like that was back in 96 and it was a very, it was a different time with, with, schools and just the perception of, yeah, wanting, wanting to cook for a living. Um, and then I ended up, you know, going on a, a different path or just finally finding my way to PR. But um, I love that I had that experience and looking, looking at places I, I feel I've saw in your, in your longer bio that you've worked at. I mean, you then you went over to Europe and, and, and you got a lot of experience at amazing restaurants that I've been fortunate to dine at, but I can't imagine what it's like to work at. Um, so was that, what led you, when, when did you go after culinary school um, to Europe or what kind of uh, transpired for you then? So while I was in culinary school, I really wanted to be maximizing my time. So I took the opportunity to go to the city every time I could. And uh, basically got a, you know, I guess you would call it like a very extended stage position at uh, Nobu in Tribeca, which was at that time, Nobu was considered to be probably one of the better restaurants in New York, if not in the country. Uh, There was only one Nobu at that time. It was in Tribeca. It wasn't like this um, multi-unit kind of multi-national brand. Um, And Nobu was a trailblazer in terms of the United States and bringing that experience of working in Peru and, and Japanese uh, kind of skill set and technique to the table. And, you know, on the New York landscape and in Los Angeles, where he had Matsuhisa, it was just explosive and super exciting. And from there, you know, I got a position at Aqua in San Francisco, which at that time was considered to be one of the premier seafood restaurants in the country. And it's, you know, it was iconic there for a very long time. That's where Michael Mina got his start at. And then there was a chef, uh, Laurent Manrique, uh, George Marone opened it. It was, it, so it's, it's an iconic restaurant. It's now where Michael Mina's flagship restaurant is in San Francisco. And I got to work there for a number of years. And then, you know, there became a lot of murmurings around uh, Joel Robichon uh, opening in the United States. And that was something that was super interesting, I think, to American cooks, the uh, the prospect of being able to work for someone like that with that cachet that, you know, it, at that time, it was it was very challenging 
uh, to go to Europe and just get a job. It wasn't like it had been maybe more in the 90s because unemployment in Europe was skyrocketing. So it was very challenging to get any sort of work permit to go there. So to get there, you either need to have a connection or you just really need to go by, like fly by the seat of your pants and just show up there and hope that somebody would let you in. And that was, that was very sketchy. That was a challenging thing to do. So I had moved all my stuff to Vegas on the hopes that I was going to get a job at Joel Robichon. And I ended up did and got to open that restaurant, which became a three Michelin star restaurant. And it was um, insanely good. Uh, they gave me the opportunity tr to travel to Paris to go work um, uh, at their outlet there. And that was very special. Um, and I got to go work there for a, a short period of time and then came back to the United States. And then moved back to New York, uh, where I worked at a restaurant called Crew, which is no longer there. But um, you yeah, know, in terms of restaurant, yeah, restaurant like Robert Bohr, who's you know, at, in my mind, he's one of the, um, you know, I think Robert Bohr is like one of the best American restaurant tours um, of of kind of our generation. He's he just get has that get it factor when it comes to hospitality and really knowing what guests want. Um, and there was a chef there. Shea Galante, who came from like the Boulay camp, and he was the chef at Boulay for, you know, during the time that they got four stars. So it, it was a very, um, you know, it was a very interesting restaurant. There was a lot of really amazing things going on there. But ultimately, it, it wasn't the right fit for me culturally. And I got an opportunity to go uh, become the uh, sous chef at 11 Madison Park. Um, and this was before a lot of the awards and accolades and you know, there was an amazing team there. And it's just when you walked in the kitchen, you could sense something really exciting was happening. It wasn't because it was, you know, it, it, the writing wasn't in the papers, you know, and it wasn't kind of these accolades. But when you walked in the kitchen, you just got a sense of what was happening there. There was this distinct buzz around you. Just people knew what they were working on was something special. And I was just, I was in, I was enthralled and everything about that space uh, spoke to me, you know, the kitchen culture, the food, um, you know, the camaraderie, the intensity, uh, the challenge. Uh, working there was very much akin to trying to, you know, uh, be successful in athletics. You know, it was very much about training your mind and training yourself and constantly trying to get better and getting constant feedback. And that was something that I thrived in. So I got to work there for a number of years, and that was really terrific. Uh, that was, I, I would probably say that was the best um, work experience of my lifetime in terms of really gearing me up for what it would take to be successful in the industry. And from there, I, I had met a significant amount of amazing chefs and people from all over the world, whether it was Mauro Calabreco from Mirazor doing dinners together, or, you know, we got to do um, you know, dinners, uh, with Christopher Costow and the Meadowood team. We got to do dinners with Yannick Aleno. We got to do, I mean, it was, it was truly special. So when I left there, you know, after a number of years and really kind of sinking my teeth into that position, I think that was the moment where I knew that if I wanted to go to Europe, I would, I would be welcomed there. And that was the case. And I, and I think that was actually a really good thing because had I gone when I was just a young cook, um, you know, the truth is you, you probably would just be sitting there picking herbs and, um, putting away produce and people's walk-ins, which is by the way, like super key to your education, but you don't need to be in Europe to do that. 
you know, you can be at a great American restaurant to do that, right? Like, I think if you're going to go abroad, it should be to be learning um, different things, different flavor profiles, different techniques, seeing different kitchen setups, learning different languages. And I think that is best done when you already have some experience under your wing, because then you become an asset to whoever you're visiting rather than just someone that's in the way. And so I got to spend uh, a year in Europe kind of just hanging out with, you know, some people that I thought were truly spectacular and really, really special talents. Um, and I got to see a huge gamut, right? Like I got to spend some time in La Crion in the kitchen there, which was one end of the super luxurious spectrum. And also at Le Pont de Bron in um, Switzerland uh, with, you know, then it was uh, Benoit Violet, um, you know, uh, yeah. rest, rest his soul, um, <clears throat> which, you know, obviously is an iconic restaurant. And then I got to see the opposite spectrum of just like super kind of gritty uh, Parisian bistros that were just, honestly, they were hole in the walls that people came in and kind of put some new curtains on and uh, sanded some tables and basically made the best of the space with incredible ingredients. And I got to see all the different kind of things in between there. I, uh, you know, going to Mirazur to the south of France and Monton and, you know, waking up to the ocean smell and the ocean sound. And you'd go out into the garden while it was still dark to pick herbs and flowers before the sun would uh, start to kind of wilt them. And the fishermen would bring in, you know, sometimes 14, 15 different varieties of catch to the restaurant straight from the water um, by seven o'clock in the morning. And you'd pick all that and all of that needed to be on the lunch menu and you would need to get it ready and prepare it. And everything was a la minute and you wouldn't even cut your vegetables sometimes until they were ordered in. And that was a spectacular experience. So I think, yeah. uh, you know, all, all in all, that's kind of brought me to where I am today. Wow. I mean, so much amazing experience. My, my last trip to Europe was to go dine at Mirazar. <laughs> Um, I went, I went with a friend in December and it was unbelievable. It was one of those places I always wanted to go to. Um, so I mean, it's, it's, it's really special. Um, but it, you're, it I is mean, a special restaurant. yeah, really incredible and beautiful. The most beautiful setting of a, of a, of a Michelin star restaurant I've, I've been to. Um, so what inspired you, what led you to Cafico? Um, I mean, because now I haven't been because the last time I was in San Francisco, um, I don't think uh, you weren't open yet. I think I was there in 2017. So um, I'm dying to go or experience. But what what inspired that concept? Because um, it's Italian. It's um, it's a little different than these these fine dining places that that you worked. Yeah. So, I mean. Really, the impetus behind Kefiko was uh, was a couple of things. Um, number one, first and foremost, uh, I think ultimately I wanted to make food that I wanted to eat. And I think that I really came to that mindset when I was in Europe. You know, I had left 11 Madison Park and I was so, um, you know, bought in. I drank every ounce of Kool-Aid there was about that experience and about, you know, constantly pushing the boundaries and everything like that. And I think through my time of like, you know, seeing the bistronomy of Paris and seeing the, you know, the cool old neighborhood restaurants in Barcelona and, 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 you know, the trattorias in Rome and things like that, you know, I think I started to recognize, you know, what was it that I was trying to do and what was making me happy 
And the truth is, it was honestly making me happy when I was happiest, when I was cooking food that I wanted to eat and I wanted to eat often. And the idea of a neighborhood restaurant was really something that um, I, I just couldn't get out of my head. I wanted to be a part of a community in a real way um, and not just like tangentially or physically, but like really a part of a community where the community kind of uh, opened up in within my space, within the dining room. And, um, you know, I think that led me to a very long search for a space. I saw dozens. And when I say dozens, I mean, 50, 60 spaces between Los Angeles and here. And finally, I walked into an old auto body shop. And I looked around, and I said, this is where I want to open my restaurant. This is my dream. And the landlord, honestly, he knew I didn't have any money at that time, he and he just believed in me. He believed in my idea. And secondly, there's another reason why I wanted to open this concept because the truth is, I think that there's a lot of chefs within my generation, probably, and I think also to a greater extent, the young, the generation kind of that's coming behind us, um, that forget the virtue of being a savvy business person. And the truth is like, I wanted to open a successful business. And that was the first thing I wanted to prove. I had proven already that I could work at the highest levels of gastronomy. And I had proven that I could work in fine dining. And the truth is like, you know, it, it doesn't really take a lot, by the way, to go and do something that is in a lot of ways, um, you know, almost like regurgitating the things that you've already seen, you know, in, in a lot of ways they're, they're, you know, copies of a copy, right? Um, you know, it's very rare for a restaurant like Noma or a restaurant like 11 Madison Park or a restaurant like Danielle or a restaurant like, you know, um, Mirazer to, to exist, Favakin, right? Like these are once in a generation restaurants. And then for every one of those, you have about a hundred other restaurants, which feel like copies of a copy. And I think that if you're not really going to have something that you want to speak on in that genre of restaurant, then it's best not to get involved. And I think a lot of people like me work their entire career in fine dining and then feel like they're obligated to do fine dining because that was their entire experience. And the truth is at that time, I don't think I had enough to say that was unique enough that, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, I think what I would have just been doing was uh, doing something that was, um, you know, uh, some sort of derivative from 11 Madison Park, right? And not that that's a bad thing, but that's really where I would have pulled from. And I think for me, I wanted to prove that I could be a smart and shrewd business person on my own. I wanted to do something that the neighborhood would appreciate for a long time to come. And, you know, honestly, for me, eating pasta um, and making pasta was probably one of the most gratifying things that I was doing at the time. I think I've come to a place over the, you know, and keep in mind, I started the process to open Tefico around five years ago at this point, if not longer. And uh, with my business partner, Matt Brewer. And, you know, I think over that time, I've started to distill an idea of what I would do if I did fine dining again. And I'm not saying that that's out of the cards for me. Like, I, I certainly have thought about it. And you know, one day there may be that moment that feels right. But Kfico in its current iteration and what we're doing here is what felt right for me at the time. And 
And I think I was, you know, um, validated in my choice, considering the fact that, you know, we were constantly full. We were on a schedule to pay our investors back in record time. We were, you know, doing business in arguably the hardest market to do business in in the United States in terms of the lowest margins ever in a business that is inherently low margin. And we were still being successful. And I think that validated everything I needed to validate in terms of being able to be a shrewd business person and not just a uh, and not just an artist. Right. Because I do consider myself an artist as well. And I think that sometimes we really need to recognize those paths between, you know, art and commerce and how they, you know, how they coalesce, but also letting each one have their due. Yeah. And you received um, accolades, many accolades for uh, your restaurant. And, and I'm, we met at the hot 10 Bon Appetit party. Um, so, I, I, and I was, it was, it was wonderful to meet you and your pastry chef, um, Angela Pinkerton there. And, um, and so I'm glad I got a little taste of what you're doing. Let me let me ask you my question from my last guest. I had on episode 265, Dale DeGroff, who's known as King Cocktail. He has a new book out, The New Craft of the Cocktail, Everything You Need to Know to Think Like a Master Mixologist. So he wants to know, at Cafico, on your menu, do you have any of the foods from Calabria, the Southern Italian cuisine that we all love so much, like Soprasada, he named, and he said his mom's side of the family is from that region. Yeah, so one of, so we certainly do, and it's funny he, that he uh, specifically called out uh, so, some salumi <laughs> like Soprasada. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny also, because if you were to travel through um, Italy and ask for Soprasada in about a dozen different regions, you'd see a dozen different things that look differently. Um, and that's kind of the, I think that's Italy in a nutshell. Um, but yes, we do have quite a few things from Calabria. It's one of my favorite regions to cook from my favorite ingredient, um, from the Calabrian region that we have fell, fallen in love with that we make, I believe we make quite well is Anduya. And that's a spreadable, a spicy spreadable salami, which, um, you know, it has a higher fat content to it. So it never fully forms. And after it goes through its acidification process and it goes through its aging process, um, it stays in this spreadable form. And it is truly one of the delights um, of the region. And I think it's one of the best things that we make. We put it in pasta preparations. We serve it um, just in its kind of raw state to spread on uh, freshly grilled, uh, you know, Levon bread, which we bake here. We've put it on pizzas before we've uh we've given it out as gifts uh, we think that you know that as an ingredient is one of our favorite things to work with wow now i'm, now I'm hungry <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah i'm glad he he asked that question and uh let's talk um thinking rather we'll wait for the industry news part of the show we'll talk a little about what's happening now with COVID and your businesses, because that will tie in well there. Why don't we talk a bit now about your podcast? Because I've now, I've now listened to two of them. The main ingredient, I listened to um, your show first with Dominique Crenn, and I listened to the show with the, the, your, your Panettone friend. Um, <laughs> it was uh, Roy, quite, Roy Schwartz yes. Um, I mean, wonderful interviews, and I really got a lot out of it. Um, 
why don't tell me tell me what inspired you to want to do a podcast and and the you know what what you the format and you know what you're what you're hoping to get out of it um i think ultimately why i started it was because i was becoming frustrated with the discourse in um you know in the world and i felt like there was you know there's been a uh constantly shrinking space for nuanced conversation for conversation that is not you know all in all i guess you would say pc or um you know it is not it's not like uh, signaling to one end of a spectrum or another. It kind of resides soundly in the middle and kind of treads around there. You know, this idea of having a conflicted um, opinion, even within yourself, right? And and that being okay. Not, not um, you know, I think we're living in a time where people need to go check Twitter to find out how they feel about something. And that, yeah. that that's really concerning to me because I think that in, in, a world where there is so much information out there and your access to information is greater than it ever has been before. And yes, some of that information can be false and some of the information can be good and it has to be up to you to find it. Um, but you would think that in that time that we have all of this information, uh, this would be the best time in the world to just learn how to decipher information and make up your mind. And I think that we have gotten lazier actually. And our ability to process information and, and, and seek it out has become lazier. And everything is about clickbait and headlines. And people will read a headline of something and not even read the meat of the journal, uh, of, of the, you know, of the article, you know, and I know after over the past, you know, seven months, I've now published two op-eds. And the one thing that I can tell you about an op-ed or about, um, you know, about an article is A, they're called op-eds for a reason because it's your opinion, right? Um, and B, you don't choose, most of the time, you don't choose your own byline. That is chosen by an editor who needs to get a certain amount of clicks or a certain amount of, you know, uh, shares on an article, right? And so I can tell you, even with my two articles that I wrote, you know, I offered two bylines, which I thought were very um accurate to what I was trying to write about. And they got changed to suit what the editor's needs were, right? And even looking at them, sometimes I was like, I'm not really sure that that embodies what I'm trying to say here. Um, and so yeah. I think that, you know, we, we have gotten um, lazier in terms of, you know, finding information. And, you know, I also really um, started to get slightly um, frustrated with the idea of being taken out of context. And that didn't happen to me a, a tremendous amount of times. And it also didn't, I don't want to act like there was something that happened that was like so vicious that, that it sent me down this like path. But I just started to notice a trend, right? That every time I spoke with a journalist, sometimes I would spend an hour on the phone with them and I would get two sentences of that hour into an article in which they would clump us in with four other people and they would oftentimes take the two sentences that meant the least and that really, really didn't, um, you know, it didn't get to the meat of the bone of, you know, of, of what we're talking about. And I think that that's what I wanted to change. I wanted to change the fact that everyone else in terms of, you know, whether it's media, whether it's, um, you know, TV, whether it's, you know, uh, print, 
whatever it is, they had the keys to telling the story of the people like me and the other people in the industry and my other colleagues um, who really should be telling their own stories. And I think that that was something that like, I think is the real reason why I wanted to have conversations with people um, that were pretty full and unvarnished and not overly edited. And I think that people really appreciated that. And that's why, you know, we've been able to book a, a bunch of really cool guests so far. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's having a platform and having little, you know, control or being able to um, have these conversations. And I have to say, though, your op-ed pieces were, were really great. I know the one with Business Insider um, with uh, Larissa Zimbaroff, who's who's a colleague and friend. Um, it really, you know, really struck a chord with, with the industry and um, to get your voice out there. And I think it's it's wonderful that you you now have this podcast to get your voice and the voice of uh, your colleagues and and fellow. I mean, it's not it's not just chefs. It's you know you're co- covering a spectrum of, of different, I guess, beats in the in the world. And um, what I've listened to so far has been really it's 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 um it's grabbed me. It's been it's been really well done. I love how you tie music into the show. And I also have to say you're. Your um, your main the main ingredient um, uh, what do I want to call it the sound the 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 music for it it gets the stuck in music? my head a lot. What, <laughs> yeah, what's uh, you know your theme music? <laughs> yeah, that that was actually done by my childhood best friend, who's also my co-host and producer. His name's Manny J. Um, he's he's a musical engineer and a musical producer. He makes his own music, and that's actually his voice on our theme music. Um, you know, and he, believe it or not, he banged that out in one day. Cause I just, I told him exactly the vibe that I was going for. I was like, yeah. Hey, you, you know, this song or this genre of songs that we used to listen to in this moment. And he's like, yep, I got it. I'll come right back to you. And he was able to get it done. So, um, you know, beautifully. And I never get sick of hearing it. It's, it's, I, I totally agree with you. It does get stuck in your head in the best of ways. It really does. I mean, it's it's very catchy. So job job well done all across all all, all um, aspects. And um, I look forward to listening more. Who who do you, who are some of your um, guests you have coming up? So we just, uh, as you said, we just published Roy Schwarzapel, um yesterday, and that's out now. Um, you know, and previously we did um, Dominique Cren, who is an incredible friend, and she's an incredible chef with yeah. a great story. Um, you know, in between that, we had a really um, great musician. His name's Adrian Marcel, who is, um, you know, he's a platinum uh, platinum record selling uh, musician from here in Oakland. And I felt like that conversation was very important. And I really enjoyed that one as well. Um, we are going to be having, coming up, uh, Tanya Holland, who's uh, the chef of Brown Sugar Kitchen, another Bay Area mm-hmm. native. We have a uh, DJ named Big Vaughn, who's been a DJ in the Bay Area on the radio, on you know, on the hip hop stations for uh, about twenty something years. And you know, anyone that's from here that grew up listening to the radio here has heard his voice, and he's been a super pivotal, um, I think, personality and voice for the culture here. Um, we also have uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who we've recorded with, and that's going to be coming uh, soon as well. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting someone else, but, but yeah, we, we, we have a number of really great guests coming up. 
Awesome. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you launched your own podcast. I think it's great. And uh, I look forward to listening more. We are going to take a little break here and we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk industry news. We'll have my solo dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But to know North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better for your business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DenoneAwayFromHome.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is David Neyfeld. He is the executive chef and co-owner of Cafico and Cafico Elementari in San Francisco. He's also the co-host of a new podcast called The Main Ingredient. So, David, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Figured you're always ready. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Liquor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. I think it's a first. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. Um, tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Hosting a podcast or being a guest on a podcast? Hosting. Okay. Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress or lifestyle brand entrepreneur with Goop? Uh, yeah, I, that's a tough one. As I stump you on that one. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, you know, I've gotten to know her as Gwyneth Paltrow, the person, honestly. Okay. Um, Fair. And, and I just kind of would like to say that as Gwyneth Paltrow, the person, she's actually an, a pretty exceptional person and she's been 
uh, really special. So like, I mean, I, I've, to be honest with you, I've been a fan of her as an actress for, you know, for forever. And I think, I think she has been incredible in a lot of movies. So I'll, I'll say the actress. Awesome. Okay. I have two more cheese plate or dessert. Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or San Francisco? Oh man. Um, yeah. So you're, you're, you're striking a chord with me because <laughs> San, San Francisco is home to me a hundred percent and I love it here and I would choose it over anywhere else, but I'm feeling a little bit bent out of shape with the way our city has treated us. Uh, not just us as a, a restaurant, but like us as an industry, us as a, a public and, you know, but I'm going to stay with San Francisco. Okay. Well, there you have it. That's the game. You are fast, speedy. So let's talk some industry news. Um, in the New York Times yesterday, or today's paper came out online yesterday, there was an article, New York dining is moving indoors. How nervous should you be? As dining rooms reopen, doctors, engineers, and other experts assess these, the health risks and how restaurants can reduce them. And this was by Pete Wells, the reviewer for the New York Times. Um, so today, today is is the day. Today is the day that New York City restaurants open or can open for indoor twenty five percent capacity in restaurants. Um, we've had outdoor dining going on here for a little while, so. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's his article he's pointing out. Um, there's there's fears in it. There's some people on board. Um, I mean, I happen to see that the COVID numbers in New York went up uh, to 3% as of it was down from 1%. So there's concerns about this. But um, what's happening, David, what's happening in San Francisco with, with indoor dining, outdoor dining, and, and the status of, of your restaurants right now? Um, so sorry, is the question about the article or is the question about San Francisco? Well, both. I thought we could tie it in together. Like, um, sure. yeah, I mean, no, feel, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on the article? Um, and, and, and I was just curious with, with this, with this talk of fears of dining out in New York, um, what's hap- what, what the word is generally, um, over, over in your city. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to answer that without getting into a, a broader, um, you know, topic that, you know, maybe is, is t- maybe it's something I should discuss at a different time. But, you know, I, I've been very disappointed with food journalism and the folks involved with it um, over the past couple of years. Um, and, and during COVID, I think it's become more so than before. Um, I think that there's been a lot of things written that are honestly, like I said, it's clickbait. And there's a lot of things that people, you know, are drumming up either fears or stoking, um, you know, flames of people's, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, their inner kind of pitchfork or what, whatever it is. And and the truth is, I, I think that you know, what I, what I had hoped would happen during this time is that food media would stop and recognize the fact that, you know, without chefs and restaurants and without the people that work inside of those restaurants, uh, 
you know, food media would not have much to talk about. They wouldn't have much to write about. And, and frankly, they wouldn't have jobs. And I think that unfortunately what I've seen is a lot of things that does not take into account, um, you know, how to, in a really productive manner, help restaurants do things well. And instead it is about like, hey, let's watch this person walking a tightrope. And while they're walking the tightrope, let's sit there in the like, you know, cheap seats kind of talking about like, oh man, if they fall, this is going to be real bad. I can't, let's get your camera out. Like, let's see what happens when they fall. And then like, even to the point where you're like trying to distract them and like, hey, hey, like, and I think that is something that has over overwhelmingly disappointed me and a number of my colleagues during this time. So without kind of parsing that too much, I'll get into your like other question. Um, no, you know, I'm, glad, I think, I'm glad you said all that, you know, I think it's important to hear. Yeah. Um, and so without, you know, getting into the other, you know, getting into your actual question is, you know, the truth is I have paid close attention to what's going on in San Francisco and some other markets, but um, I believe um, that there needs to be a little bit, and this goes back to the com- the thing about why I wanted to have a podcast, right? I believe there needs to be a little bit more of a measured conversation in which we start discussing things um, of contrast, in contrast, right? And one of the things that I think people have been overwhelmingly afraid to do, depending on where you are, is to either say, hey, there is a place for science in this conversation and medicine. And then there's also a place for economy in this conversation. And I think that if you're in a place that's overwhelmingly, you know, we'll, we'll use the color codes, right? If you're in a place where it's overwhelmingly red, uh, it is not okay to bring up science and like, you know, medical realities, right? And if you're in a place that's overwhelmingly blue, it is not okay to talk about the economy. It's insensitive. And the truth is it falls somewhere in the middle and depending on where you are in your science, um, it's somewhere, you know, it, and, and that's a varying degree of the middle. Um, you know, so about New York, I, I don't know enough about that what's happening there because I know that they had a really, really challenging time up front and they really, I mean, I applaud the folks there for like, you know, hunkering down and doing what they needed to do. Here in San Francisco, we shut down before anyone else in the country. Our restaurant shut down before, um, you know, the city even mandated it. Um, and we've been shut for seven months. Um, our numbers have never really been very high at all. And we are also just have announced that the city is able to open to 25% dining. Um, and we have been very slow. And when I say we, I mean, uh, my business partner, Matt Brewer and I have been very slow to do anything besides closing. Right. We were very we were very quick to close because, you know, we felt like it was in the best interest of the guests and, and, and our team during that time because we didn't know what was happening. And just not being sure was not a, a place where we felt comfortable operating. And so where that leaves us today is I don't think that we will open to 25 percent for a number of reasons. Number one is um, financially, it just doesn't make sense for us. There's not a way in which we open to 25 percent that we even break even. Um, and I think what we're doing downstairs at Kefiko Alimentari with our to-go program, uh, what we've done with the Kefiko Family Meal Program, with uh, our newly built outdoor seating, 
with our packaged foods. Uh, we've created pasta kits. We've created this beautifully branded, you know, pasta sauces and things like Janduya and uh, Calabrian Chili Bamba. You know, all of those things, I think, uh, have become really popular and have allowed us to kind of barely stay afloat. Now, we're not making any money and we've lost a tremendous amount of money during this process. But I think we'd rather focus in on that and just try and make that successful and see what happens um, and see what happens with the science and see what happens with everything else. Uh, the main thing that I want to point out, and this is like if anyone takes anything from this podcast, I hope they take this one thing away because right now there's nothing more important than this, that the only way our industry makes it through this at all, and I'm talking about like there's already been a significant amount of closures, but the only way we make it through this in any way is not 25% dining and it's not 50% dining. It's not even 75% dining. It, it is the Restaurants Act, full stop. And right now uh, the House um, and Nancy Pelosi and uh, over we have over 200 uh, co-signatories in the House and over 41 co-signatories in the Senate. So the House has wrapped it up into their new Heroes Act, which is a $2.2 trillion bill. They came down from $3 trillion and they made room for uh, the entire Restaurants Act, which me and countless other restaurateurs, chefs and operators have gotten on the phone every single morning for the past you know, six months to fight for and lobby for and get on the phone with. Sometimes there was weeks where I'd speak to 15 different congressional members or their offices, right? And constantly, you know, hammering away at this. If this, if the Restaurant Act doesn't get passed in some form or facet, whether it's through the Heroes Act, whether it's as an individual bill, and right now it is going to be taken up for a vote as the Heroes Act, we will not survive and other restaurants will not survive. And you will see a massive closure, uh, the likes of which this country has never, ever seen. And the only beneficiaries of that are going to be big box retail. So if you are, you know, one of those people who you're like, hey, look, for me, like all I care about is having a Jamba Juice, a McDonald's, a Chipotle and, uh, you know, those things uh, around me, then that's fine for you because those are pe those are the people who are going to come in and take these leases. Um, but at the end of the day, if you are someone that values your independent restaurants, you need to call Congress now and ask them to act. And then you need to call the Senate and specifically you know, um, call your local representative and let them know that you expect them to support the Restaurants Act. Yes. Yes to all of that. I mean, I, I, I'm so glad you said everything you did and the work that you've been doing and with the chefs and the restaurateurs with the Independent Restaurant Coalition is is amazing. And that I, I commend you for your work. And I hope I, I yes, it needs to it needs to pass and we need to save restaurants. Um, so. Um, so much more, so much more we could talk about, dive into that, but, um, starting to run out of time. So I'm going to go into my solo dining experience, which this week, um, I was going to talk about going to Gramercy Tavern, but I'm going to hold that to next week because I wanted to talk about my experience going to the restaurant at Meadowood, um, because that was the other article in the news I picked out, which is tragic news about, um, how the restaurant is, uh, it was, uh, I mean, a few couple days ago, it was just all over social media. Um, it was being, it was burnt down by some glass fires spread in the Napa Valley, Re Valley region. So this, this, I, I just want to share this as um, a special experience I had had there. Uh, so here's my rundown. The location, 900 Meadowood Lane, St. Helena, California. The concept, a three-star Michelin restaurant, 
modern American uh, cuisine in the heart of Napa Valley. The chef and owner, Christopher Costow, who's received many accolades, including Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chefs in 2009 and James Beard Award for Best Chef Pacific in 2013, uh, so why did I go? So my experience I'm talking about was in July, on July 26, 2014. It was when I had flown across the country by myself to go eat at the French Laundry, and I just went went all out and also went to Meadowood, um, and I talked about the French Laundry experience on episode 29. So um, why am I talking about it? Well, because devastating news struck earlier this week, as I said, there was a glass fire, which um, tragically damaged the restaurant. And my heart goes out to the chef, uh, Christopher and his wife, Martina, and the whole tram, tramily, as they call it. Um, and I just wanted to commemorate the experience. So, uh, or commemorate them, my experience. So it was really magical. Um, I drove up, uh, it was just gorgeous Napa Valley with all the greenery in the woods. And I just remember as soon as I got to the front, I was just so warmly greeted. I have to say the hospitality of this dining experience was by far the best hospitality I've ever received at a restaurant. And you can, you know, I dine out a lot. So that says a lot. Um, I sat at the bar. I, I, I ate there. I chatted with uh, the manager and I just had a really wonderful experience. I got a tour of the kitchen and I left um, happy. So what did I get? I did their three course tasting menu, their three course menu instead of the full course menu, which you get at the bar. Um, there were a few small bites. There was a, uh, the dishes included a heavenly potato dish. There was a savory duck. There was a Wagyu beef. There were two uh, desserts. One was a creamy yogurt with olive oil. And I also got some fancy pour over coffee. Uh, my take, it was divine from start to finish. The ambiance, it's a serene, elegant, and handsome space. It has the warmth of, of fireplaces throughout. I'd say it's perfect for a special occasion or a reason to dress up. Interesting tidbit, uh, the restaurant is located in Meadowood, Napa Valley's 20-acre private estate uh, with, with lodging and robust collection of amenities. And Christopher Casto also has a casual restaurant called The Charter Oak, and his newest place is Ensu in China. Personal fun fact. So before this dinner, I treated myself to a my first mud bath that I've ever had and a massage up at Indian Springs in Calistoga. So I was like, I was really chill at this dinner. Um, I and I probably had the softest skin I've ever had as well. Um, and also personal fun fact, I've been back to the restaurant twice in 2016 and 2017 when I was at the CIA's Worlds of Flavor conference. We went there afterward um, with a bunch of, of the other presenters uh, to have some snacks. And again, it was wonderful. So the cost of my meal was $130, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I hope so. I hope they can rebuild. I think they are planning to. My heart goes out to them. It's so it's really tragic. Um, and it was all over, yeah, my social media feed. Just everyone, everyone loves this restaurant for very good reasons and the people behind it. So um, their website's the restaurantmeadowwood.com. So there we go. You had mentioned, um, David, you had mentioned uh, working with Christopher Costell or at some earlier um, or collaborating? Yeah. So, um, you know, Christopher Costell works for Daniel Home at Campton Place here in San Francisco, and they've, you know, always obviously kept in touch. And, you know, uh, when he had, you know, went to become the chef at Meadowood, 
you know, there we had done multiple collaboration dinners with them and their team uh, in New York at 11 Madison Park. And, you know, we had gotten to know each other. And, you know, he's just a tremendous talent. And one thing that I do want to say about Meadowood is, you know, I think uh, our fine dining institutions in, you know, in this country have taken a bit of a culture hit because they are deemed to be places where, you know, only the 1% can dine. Um, and one thing that I want to push back on is, you know, I, I've never grown up with any money. I still don't have any money. Uh, you know, my parents came here as refugees. Eating fine dining meals was not in our budget. Um, but I will tell you that working in fine dining restaurants has been, for me, higher, uh, a, a higher education. Right. And it is the idea of, you know, whether you go to culinary school or not. And trust me, there was significant amount of people that I worked with that never went to culinary school. Um, you know, working in a fine dining restaurant like Meadowood or 11 Madison Park or Joel Robichon is the equivalency to getting a master's degree in whatever you're doing or a doctorate in whatever you're doing. And I think that these institutions are important to protect and they're important to, um, you know, to hold up in a certain regard in the sense that the amount of people that come through those doors who work tirelessly to build something special and who learn skills that they then take on and open restaurants like Kefico or open, you know, your, your favorite local restaurant, you know, that is this small little wine bar, charming wine bar, you know, whatever it is, they take those skills from those restaurants and they apply them to everyday work, which I think you know, in a lot of ways ends up feeding into a much more accessible dining experience, right? And I think people think that it is just one of those places where it's all about the haves and have nots. And people don't recognize the amount of work that places like that also do for charity, the amount of fundraising they do for charity, the amount of things that they do that are beyond just, you know, um, profiteering as a restaurant. And I hope that uh, Meadowood rebuilds because what they were doing there uh, similar to, you know, what restaurants like Single Thread have done and the French Laundry and, you know, Stone Barns or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, I'll throw in, I can throw in Charlie Trotters into the mix because I worked exactly. there back. back. Yeah. yeah. Then that's still I mean, I, I hold so much value in that experience with everything you're saying. Right. And, and you know, I think I would just hope that, you know, I think that it has become very popular to demonize restaurants like that. And I think people need to pump their brakes slightly because those places have acted as the centers for opportunity for a lot of people who did not come from money um, to build lives for themselves. And, you know, we have put in those places on our resumes and then we have learned whatever we could learn and then gone off and trained other people and taught other people those skills. And I think that without places like that, without people like Christopher Costa, without people, you know, like, you know, the folks who swing at the highest levels to try and do things at the most pristine levels, um, you know, our cuisine as a country would not be where it's at today. And we would not have the culture of dining that we do have today if it weren't those people at the highest level. So to everyone who's ever worked at the restaurant at Meadowood, my heart goes out to you. Um, to Christopher Costa and his family and everyone um, there, you know, I I hope that you rebuild, and I thank you for everything that you've done for our industry. And I truly, truly hope that people start to recognize that 
you know, just because a place has three Michelin stars, just because it is too expensive for you to eat at um, even once a year, you know, it does not mean that it doesn't have a place in our um, in our industry. You know, they are iconic for a reason. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that they push the needle, you know, they, they push the needle and they move the needle on where our cuisine is as a country more so than you may think. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's certainly special. They're special. And as we both said, our heart goes out to them. And so let's, um, let's wrap up the show now with my final question question. So, um, my next guests are Greg and Darren Bresnitz. They are the twin brother duo behind Snacky Tunes podcast here on Heritage Radio. And they have a new book coming out called Snacky Tunes. Music is the main ingredient. Chefs and their music. Chefs and their music. I got stuck on that. Is the main ingredient. Chefs and their music. Um, David, can you please ask a question for Greg and Darren? Yeah, that's that's amazing because obviously <laughs> my, my my podcast is called The Main Ingredient with David Nafeld. You know, uh, I think that there is a lot of parallels between becoming a chef and becoming a musician. I think obviously a lot of it depends on what your accessibility is and what your talent level is for any of those things. But I think that um, the mindset of the people who get into those industries, um, you know, there are a lot of parallels, and the people who kind of uh, thrive in those um, industries, there's a lot of parallels. So I guess my question is, you know, what's on your playlist right now? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I'll find out. Yeah. Um, so funny. This all ties in together with the main ingredient. I love it. <laughs> So that's the show. I, I wish we had more time to talk about, uh, you know, everything that you're doing with um, it, it's, it's tremendous, but we, we did cover a lot. So <laughs> um, I, I just want to wish you much continued success and I will keep listening to your show and I hope to get out to San Francisco uh, one of these days and further support you there. So um, congratulations and thanks for joining me. As our people say, next year in Jerusalem. <laughs> Fabulous. So my guest today has been David Nafeld. He is the executive chef and co-owner of Cafico and Cafico Elementari in San Francisco. His new podcast is The Main Ingredient. His websites are, well, his website is cafico.com. Uh, That's C-H-E-F-I-C-O.com. And the main ingredient, um, it's on, I believe, all different podcast platforms. Um, is that right, David? Yes, everywhere where you listen to your podcast. And please go on Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars and leave a comment and subscribe. <laughs> yes, do that. And do that for all in the industry, too, while you're at it. Um, <laughs> on social media, uh, you can follow David at David Nafeld at Cafico and at Cafito, Cafico Elementari. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to David and his wonderful publicist, Susan Hosmer. I'm Sherry Bayer. Till next week, be safe. 
be well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.